Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible and need to borrow one, uh, there should be one, a hardbound black Bible somewhere around you. Mark chapter 1 is on page 836. If you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to take that one with you as our gift. Mark chapter 1, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Now, in case you haven't been around, we are in a series called From Garden to Glory, looking at the storyline of the Bible as it proceeds from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the glory of the new earth in Revelation. And we've come really now to the heart of that great story in the person and work of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Matthew's account of His birth. And now, here in the beginning of Mark, it is actually 30 years later, and Jesus' public ministry is about to begin. And so, we read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. This is what the Spirit says to us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to meet him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word words that you have spoken by your Spirit through your chosen men who wrote them down. And we come asking for the help of your Spirit that we might hear them and understand them clearly, that you might press them on our hearts so that we might think differently, believe differently, live differently. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, It was uh, 14 years ago 
Uh, not exactly to this day, but it was 14 years ago that I first opened up the Gospel of Mark in this pulpit. Uh, as we began what ended up being a year-long series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and uh, so uh, it has sentimental value for me to come back to Mark here on this anniversary of that time. But as you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that you'll find is Mark essentially wants to press home three things. He wants to press home who Jesus is and press home why it is that He came and thirdly, what it means to follow Him. Now, I didn't come up with that. That was helpfully summarized by Rico Tice, a British evangelist, but I can't read Mark any other way now because I see it everywhere, who Jesus is why He came, and what it means to follow Him. Now, in our lives and in our workplace and in a whole host of places, we all know that character matters. Character matters especially when you are expected to trust someone else. Nobody wants to be lied to. Nobody wants to be misled. Nobody wants to be used or manipulated or cheated. So that's why we teach our children that character matters when it comes to the friends that they choose. You know, the one who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Character matters in the folks who handle our investments, right? Character matters in those who serve our city as police officers. Character matters in every realm of leadership, whether it's in locker rooms or schools or businesses or churches or the, even to the highest offices of the nation. I mean, my goodness, every parent who has ever hired a babysitter knows character matters. So when we hear the Bible tell us that we are to trust Jesus, that we are to follow Jesus, that we are to obey Jesus, that we are to imitate Jesus' way of living, then you know what? Jesus' character matters. Who He is matters. And in the very first verse here, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, that is not just a one-liner, like a one-off. This is, this is the theme of his whole gospel. Mark wants us to read the entire gospel, all 16 chapters, and he wants us to come to the end of it and think back on all that we've read, all that we've seen Jesus do in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection, and he wants us to come to the same conclusion that the centurion came to when he watched Jesus die. In chapter 15, that centurion says, Truly, this was the Son of God. That's Mark's goal. So when you read Mark, just know that it's not just… You know, I don't like reading history books that just are dates and places, and they're almost, they read very stale and sterile. I like… I like uh, histories that make a point, that tell a story, that do something, that try to get you to think something. Even if I don't think it at the end, I want them to at least try to make me think it. And that's what Mark's doing. He wants us to believe in the depths of our being that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He's the Christ 
and that he is the Son of God. You see, we need to know this Jesus because we're called to follow this Jesus. In fact, that is, that is the call you hear Jesus give over and over again. In chapter 1, verse 17, if you just let your eye glance down to it, he runs into some fishermen, and you know what he says to them? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Chapter 2, verse 14, he runs into Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax booth, and he says, follow me. And then he says it to anyone who will listen in chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friend, anybody who would follow someone else without understanding who they are is just a fool. But Mark doesn't just tell us we need to follow Jesus. Mark tells us who this Jesus is. So that's the question we, we need to think about. Who is this Jesus that we're supposed to follow? And the answers abound in these first 13 verses as we see the character of Jesus on display. First, we see the character of Jesus proclaimed by John. Proclaimed by John. Now, as Mark begins, he wants us to know that his account isn't the beginning of a new story. Uh, It's actually the continuation of an old story. That's why we see in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then the next two words, John appeared. So Mark says Isaiah has already talked about this. And actually, When you look carefully, you realize Malachi's words, the prophet Malachi's words are mixed in there too. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And this one who comes to prepare for the Lord's arrival is John. We call him John the Baptist because of his ministry of baptism uh, in the wilderness, not because he was the founder of the Baptist church, you know, but uh, still. He was baptizing in the wilderness. And John's life and ministry fulfills this prophecy. I mean, think about this. Hundreds of years before John is even born, God inspires Isaiah and Malachi to speak about him. He must hold a great place in the story. John is a great prophet. I mean, look at his influence. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The crowds are huge. The lines for baptism are long. The confession of sin is an ongoing sound that rivals the river next to it. All these people coming to be baptized. Now, baptism in that day uh, was, was typically reserved for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. It was a way that they recognized that they were unclean and needed to be cleansed. But what is so shocking here is that it's not just Gentiles out by the river. The Jews in Jerusalem are coming out so that they can be baptized, so that they can prepare for the coming Messiah. Well, don't just look at his influence. Look at his clothing. Uh, Verse 6, John was 
clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, if your friend did that, you'd probably look at him sideways a little bit. And you got to ask, why in the world does Mark tell us this? And why in the world is John dressed this way? Well, the answer is, is that his getup, his clothing, connects him to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. As you can see in 1 Kings 19, I believe. Elijah does, wears this same stuff. The camel's hair. The leather belt. And actually what's really compelling is that Malachi, the prophet Malachi, has said that there was going to come a kind of second Elijah who was going to prepare the way for the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Listen to Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers." Now, what's great for us, because sometimes we have trouble connecting the dots in the Bible, we don't even have to connect these dots, because an angel comes to visit John's father before he is even born to say, this is the one that the prophet spoke about. Listen to what the angel says to John's father. Luke 1, 17, he will go before him, he meaning John, will go before him, the Christ, in the spirit and power of of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And bells should be going off in all of the Bible readers' minds. We've heard about this one. So we see his influence. We see he's great because of his clothing. He's actually fulfilling this. I mean, we look at him and he's a great prophet. And actually, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is a great man. If John is coming to town and there are VIP tickets to get to speak with him, the people would line up to do that. They want to know who this guy is. They want to get baptized by that guy. But then listen to what he says, this great prophet. Verse 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This one who is coming is greater, mightier. And John says he's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. This was the most demeaning job a servant could have. In fact, a Jewish servant could opt out of it because as a Jew, that is beneath them. And John, this great prophet who fulfills Scripture, who gathers crowds, whose ministry is magnanimous, says, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. All I can do is put you in water. Do you realize what he's going to do? This whole baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not just going to be external. It is going to renovate and revolutionize your soul. 
And so John's proclamation is, Jesus is superior. And that sticks with him through life. This is not just a one-time thing, because later on, John's disciples are going to come to him, and they're going to say, hey, have you, have you noticed Jesus is getting a pretty big crowd here? Um, we need to watch out. We could fall to the number two preacher in the region if we're not careful. You know what John says? He must increase, but I must decrease. If you wonder where to look for an example when Jesus says that greatness is seen in service and in humility, look to John the Baptist. Jesus is superior. And it's not just John that says it. The whole New Testament says it. In fact, if you just plant yourself in the book of Hebrews and read through it, Jesus is superior is a pretty good uh, summation of a lot of what is said there. The angels are great, but Jesus is superior. Moses is great, but Jesus is superior. The Old Testament priests were great, but Jesus, our high priest, is superior. The Old Testament sacrifices were great. But Jesus' once for all sacrifice is superior. The kingdom of Israel was great. But the worldwide kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is superior. There's no one like him, no one compares to him. He has no equal. Jesus is superior. And do you know what that means for you as a Christian? That means we got to watch out for letting our thoughts about Jesus come too low. Don't bring him down in your mind. I will tell you that this is one of the things that troubles me about these commercials that say he gets us. Now, no doubt... Jesus takes on flesh and He dwells among us and He experiences life as a human being and He breathes our air and, he, and, he, and, he go, and He's sleepy and He's hungry and all of these things. But He's not just that. He is superior. So look, as a Christian, you should think the highest thoughts about Jesus you can possibly think and know this. He's still superior to that. You should think the highest thoughts about Jesus because thinking the highest thoughts that you can about Jesus, thinking the thoughts of the Bible about Jesus actually makes His condescension to dwell with us even greater. If you eliminate His greatness, then His dwelling among us doesn't mean as much. He is superior. He is in a league all his own. That's what John proclaims. Jesus is superior. We also see the character of Jesus pronounced by God the Father. Now, for those who are not word nerds, you may just think, well, the word pronounce basically means the same thing as the word proclaim. You're just trying to get another word that starts with P. Well, Maybe. No, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> to proclaim something actually means just to take news or take something and publicize it, make it public. To pronounce is not the same thing. To pronounce something is an official act. It is a ceremonial act. It is something that is declared by kings and queens. It is something that is declared here as a man and woman stand and make vows before God to live in the covenant of marriage for life. I now pronounce you husband and wife. And that's what happens at Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus comes and submits to baptism unlike anybody else who's coming and submitting to baptism. He doesn't come and submit to baptism as a sinner. He has no sin. He comes actually simply to take His place among sinners, to identify with sinners because He has come to save sinners. And He comes and His baptism stands out from every other baptism that happened. It's not just like all the other baptisms. I mean, hundreds, thousands of people have been baptized. And do you know, not once has the heavens been torn open. Not once has the Spirit descended like a dove. Not once has a voice boomed from heaven to speak about the one being baptized. Until Jesus comes. And then the heavens are torn open. Now, this is really strong language. It's actually the language used of Jesus casting out demons. It's the language in Mark 9 when Jesus says, um, If your right eye offends you, tear it out. It is strong language. Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus is sent into the wilderness against His will. What it does mean is that Jesus is sent out deliberately, on purpose. He doesn't just wander out into the wilderness and bump up against the devil. He must be sent out there. He must be tempted. I skipped ahead, didn't I? I did. That's not about baptism. Nobody's interrupting me. You have to interrupt me. But so let's just let's just go there next, okay? So let's stay with his temp temptation. He is sent out into the wilderness in order to be tempted. This same spirit is the spirit that descends at his baptism. The heavens are torn open. Violent language. Violent. It's like ripping open the curtains, right? Rip. You you stand there. The curtains are shut, and you go. That's the kind of thing that happens. It's torn. Torn open. It's the kind of thing uh, Susan likes to do in the morning. Throw open the curtains. Open the blinds. Throw open the windows. Let the house fill with fresh air. Well, that's the kind of thing. That's what God the Father does here. He tears open the heavens, and the breeze of the Spirit blows on Jesus' baptism. 
He descends like a dove, and he comes, and he rests, and he marks Jesus. He anoints Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. In the Old Testament, prophets are anointed, and priests are anointed, and kings are anointed. And here at his baptism, Jesus is anointed because he is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. And then a voice comes from heaven, and God the Father speaks, You are my beloved Son. Now later, this same voice is going to speak to Peter and James and John on the mountaintop. This is my beloved Son. Now there's a, there are different ways that we can talk about being a son, isn't there? There are different ways, aren't there? So one thing is if I say, I am son of, and then I say my dad's name. If I say, I am son of Harold, what I can mean is that I am part of his family. That, that's, that could be a genetic statement, a biological statement, an adoption statement. I belong to that family, right? But it can also, when you use that son language, it can also be a, be a way of talking about likeness. So just last night, we had three uh, couples and their small children over, and we were all eating, and I stepped into the kitchen for a moment, and I heard from the other room, she is her mother's daughter. Now, we all know what that means, don't we? That means she's like mom in mannerisms, in characteristics. We can use that, we can use that language that way, and that language is getting us toward what this son means. But Jesus is not son in the sense that he is like the father. There is a uniqueness to this language about being son. Hebrews 1 says he is the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. In John 14, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In fact, the Bible says if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. To be called Son is to say that Jesus is God, and the Jews of that day knew it. Listen to John 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is not the son of God in the same way that I am son of Harold. He is not the son of God in the same way that I might say I am my father's son. He is the unique Son of God because He is God in the flesh. This is what is being pronounced. Other religions have their teachers, have their prophets, have their priests, but none have God incarnate. Jesus' deity sets Christianity apart from everything else. So don't fall for the line that all religions basically teach the same thing. Now it is absolutely true, and when your friend says that, you need to acknowledge that it is true that there is some overlap in moral and ethical teachings. That's true. 
But it's not completely true. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and no one else says that. And for it to be a little different is actually for it to be completely different. And here at Jesus' baptism, God the Father sets Jesus apart and makes this official declaration that not only is Jesus of Nazareth superior, He is Son of God. And that brings us to the third thing, which is He is proven by His temptation. Apparently, I was very eager to get here earlier, so now I am here. The same Spirit that has descended on Jesus now sends Him into the wilderness deliberately, on purpose, the way demons are purposely cast out, the way eyes are ripped, purposely ripped out for the sake of holiness, like I said. And here in the wilderness, Jesus must be tempted. He must face the test. He, say, he faces the same test that Adam faced in the garden. The same devil that came there comes here. He faces the same test that Israel faces when they are in the wilderness. Will he be faithful? Will he be obedient? Now, Matthew and Luke record a whole lot more about the content of these temptations. But that's not a deficiency on Mark's part. Mark is very succinct on purpose. And if you just read what's here, what you find is at the center of it is that he is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. That is what Mark wants you to know about this world. He is being tempted by Satan. And the way that that's written means that it is continual. This is not just kind of a, hey, we're going to have an appointment for an hour during these 40 days that you're out here, and I'm going to run some things past you, and we'll see if you take the bait. No, 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 no. It was every day. It was every hour. It was blow by blow, line by line, Satan tempts Jesus, tests. His heart is tested thoroughly. And the question is about whether he will be any different than Adam was. Will he be any different than Israel was? Will he be any different from any other human being? And the answer is yes. And actually, the presence of the angels points us to that. In part, the angels coming to minister him point to his humanity because he is flat out wore out by this. I mean, this is 40 days. You learn elsewhere that he's fasting. But in his humanity, this, this is like a boxer at the end of 15 rounds of just pounding away, getting a pounding. But also, the presence of these angels, notice what they're doing. In lots of other places, when things are going wrong, angels rebuke. But not here. Angels come and serve Him and minister to Him and help Him. In other words, He is God's beloved Son. He is still well-pleasing to the Father here at the end. It just wouldn't make any... Mark's gospel doesn't make sense any other way 
if you say, well, he went into the wilderness, but he failed that test. Well, why would you listen to him for one minute after that? You wouldn't. Jesus passes the test where Adam failed. Jesus passes the test where Israel failed. Jesus passes the test where we fail. And it is because Jesus succeeds in this temptation that he can help us in our temptation. Listen to Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you look at it, about the fourth line down, it says, let us then with confidence. In other words, what he says about drawing near to the throne of grace, don't cut that off from the, the verse right before it. That then connects the first verse to the second verse. What he's saying is, because Jesus was tempted as we are, because He is without sin, because He sympathizes with our weakness, then He alone can give us mercy and grace in our time of need. And at what point in life is there more of a need for mercy and grace than when we are tempted by the devil ourselves? This is good news for us here in Hebrews. We can call on Jesus for mercy and grace in temptation no matter what the test is. You may be tested through the sin of others against you by being mistreated or being hurt. You may be tested through the appeal of someone who is not your spouse who is trying to lure you in. You may be tested by what you are seeing on TV or on your phone or on the internet. You may be tested in the midst of health problems or work problems or relationship problems or school problems. You may be tested by the fact that that other person is getting recognition and promotion while you just keep staying here. There are all kinds of circumstances that can be used by the devil to tempt and in all of them your heart will be tested. And the question will be asked, do you love God completely? Will you be faithful to Him? Will you obey His Word? And friend, when that test comes, you can call on your Savior to help. You can call on Him. He sympathizes and He will give you strength to resist. He will give you strength to fight. And by His Spirit, He'll give you strength to win. We are so good in the midst of temptation of thinking that we just need to really try harder. Try harder. And listen, it is. It's a flat-out fight, isn't it? I mean, there's no, re there, there's no uh, uh, surprise that the Bible uses warfare terminology for this life. But the temptation to sin, whether it's in retaliation, whether it's in anger, whether it's in cheating your workplace, it 
There is not a single temptation that you will enter into in this life where Jesus is not sufficient to help you. Get that into your soul, dear friends. There is not a single temptation in this life where Jesus is not sufficient to help you. This is why, as an aside, when even a pastor of a humongously large church stands up to talk about the pervasive sin regarding sexuality and gender in our culture, and he says resisting it is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable strategy to resist sin. Any pastor or teacher who tells you that you must make accommodation for certain things because it is simply not sustainable to keep fighting against it, any pastor or teacher who tells you that, turn them off. Leave it immediately. Because what they are saying is greater is he who is in the world than he who is in you. Greater is the temptation than the Spirit. Greater is the sin than the God of heaven. But that is absolutely false. There is no temptation that you will face in this life where Jesus is not sufficient to help you. But actually, there's something even bigger that Jesus' success in temptation points to than His capacity to help us. And that is that as Jesus resists all temptation, remains free of sin, it testifies that He alone is qualified to be our Savior. He alone is qualified to be our substitute. He alone is qualified to make the sacrifice that we need. You see, in the Old Testament, only spotless animals could be used for sacrifice. The problem is, is that there is no real substitute for a human being that can be found in an animal. And so what humanity needs is a spotless human being, and that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sinless Son of God whose death on the cross is the God-ordained sacrifice that we need so that atonement can be made, so that forgiveness is secured, so that reconciliation with God is made sure. Jesus' success in the wilderness in temptation proves His character as the only Savior of the world. There's a lot said in 13 verses, isn't there? The question I asked at the beginning is this. Who is this Jesus that we are called to follow? And Mark answers, He is the supreme, sinless Son of God, our Savior. This 
is the Jesus we must follow. This is the Jesus who tells us to leave everything else behind and give total allegiance to him. So that whether you're at school or you're at work, we follow Jesus. Whether you're in private or in public, we follow Jesus. Whether you're single or you're married, we follow Jesus. Whether you're a child or an adult, we follow Jesus. Whether life is marked by joy or sorrow, we follow Jesus. Whether this body flourishes or is failing, we follow Jesus. Not because circumstances commend him to us, but because his character demands it of us. We follow Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, you are not following Jesus, maybe you're even just checking things out, the question really at the end of the day is not whether you want to live a better life. Because I don't know anybody who wouldn't say they want to live a better life in some way. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this Jesus? A number of decades ago, C.S. Lewis captures the alternatives well in answering the idea that that some had put forward of, of Jesus just being a great moral teacher. And in response, he writes this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for these words, for revealing your Son to us. Thank you for speaking to us fully and finally in Jesus Christ. We hear the proclamation of John that Jesus is supreme, he is superior. We hear your pronouncement from the heavens that he is the Son of God. And we see the proof in the wilderness that he is the sinless Savior of the world. God, would you question our hearts as to whether we are following him as who he really is. And God, I pray for those who don't yet know Christ, who are casual observers of religion, God, would you press that question home to them, what will you do with my son?
And God, in your grace, would you open their eyes to see him as the supreme, sinless Son of God who will save them when they call on him. Make it so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to...